each operation is, is different in what they do, but um, the, the first thing to do would be to, um, well, this is probably, you could probably do these in tandem, but obviously you do a soil test, a proper soil test, and you address your limiting factors there, and that's not just for pH. So tackle your key soil constraints. That's right. Yep. Yep. But at the same time you do that, because once you're doing that, it's easier to um, wean yourself off insecticide and fungicides because they're, they're two sides that kill, that obviously damage the, um, the whole system in supporting it because obviously you're taking out your insects and you're taking out your biology. The Biological Farming Roundtable podcast helps farmers explore innovative, low-input, regenerative and profitable farming systems. The Biological Farming Roundtable is sponsored by Nutrisoil, an award-winning biological liquid fertiliser made from a big worm farm. Nutrisoil's purpose is to empower farmers to produce life-enriching food. My name is Nicola Maddock. I work at Nutrisoil. I envisage a future where farmers are rewarded for producing nutrient-rich foods and consumers have this easily available to them. The Hetherington family first started clearing land on the edge of the salt lakes at Lake King WA in 1927. The soils in the region were very challenging, being highly sodic to a significant depth with high amounts of magnesium. Some families walked off the land because the conditions were so challenging. Rob took over management of the farm in the 1980s and the crops were struggling. At times Rob had 80-90% to screenings in barley and his pastures were full of barley grass and capeweed. Rob knew something was amiss and after researching nutrition for his wife and young family who were regularly sick, he found nutrition and biology to be the answer for his family and soon realised it was also the answer for his soil. In this episode, Rob talks with me and agroecologist David Hardwick about the steps he took in addressing his major soil constraints, reducing his sides in the system, and using nutrition, biology and diversity to turn his soils around. Hello everyone, Nicola here from NutriSoil. I'm here with David Hardwick, agroecologist. We're in Lake King in WA. We've just had a biological farming roundtable teaching people about soil health. And our host for the day was Rob Hetherington. So we were at Rob's place. Rob, how are you? Pretty good, thanks. Rob, tell us about your farm. 16 kilometres of uh, north of Lake King in what's called the, the lakes area. That's called that because of the salt lakes. So our home farm borders on the edge of um, Salt Lake, so it's um, we're dealing with high sodium soils. Then the other part of the farm is um, on the gravel soils with some clay mixed in with there and a bit of sand. And this country, Rob, was cleared for farming in the early 20th century, is that correct, or they started to clear it? Uh, yeah, I believe um, it was around about 1927, the area was first opened up and that was the area on the edge of the Salt Lakes because obviously had the, the big salmon gum trees mm. and so you used to be able to um, grow um, crops a lot better on their soils without trace elements but obviously they had the sodium to deal with. There was a guy by the name of Tickle who actually um, put the wind up a lot of um, farmers here just after the, dep- the depression years because he said this area couldn't be farmed because of the high sodium and some people actually walked off but 
uh, we've just learned how to deal with it now because you can deal with it. Yeah, manage it and keep going. So, so you've been you took over the place from your old man. What 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 year was that? Sort of how long you've been in charge of the ship? Um, well, basically, um, as soon as I got married, my father couldn't leave quick enough, so I took over when I was twenty four, and that was about nineteen eighty two, I think it was. So um, I took over managing the farm then. Yeah, mm. and you've had a couple of big soil challenges over your time um, you know managing the property and taking it to the next generation what are, what's probably some of the biggest soil challenges you've had to face and, and deal with through your time well first of all um, it uh, started out with um, water running off the property when we had sheep you get an inch of rain and the, the water would run off so I started putting contours or big interceptor banks across to um, keep the water there um, that was the right thing at the right time, but uh, knowing what I know now that um, things are different now and uh, rain infiltrates the soil. So um, sodium is a big issue, sodium at depth. Um, it's yep. caused lots of mischief. Yep, and you've got some high magnesium soil types as well. Yeah, high magnesium, high sodium, and a little bit of high potassium as well. Yeah. Yeah, so just learn how to deal with all that. And a lot of that was focusing on cation balances and particularly getting calcium numbers up. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, calcium being, being the major player there when I, when I learnt about the um, cation exchange capacity of the soils. Mm. And that really, you saw you saw positive changes in soil structure and sort of soil function from that, that approach? Yeah, huge changes. Uh, got a lot more air into the soil. Big difference in the, um, the root growth. Um, sodium levels dropping away, I mean... Sometimes, you know, in the odd year, we might get 80, 90% screenings in our barley um, just because of what sodium was doing. Well, it seems to be a thing of the past now. Mm. Rob, taking it back, uh, Shelley and I stayed here uh, last night. Thank you for having us and cooking us a wonderful meal. You didn't cook, actually, (laughs) Judy. Thanks for having us. You you showed us I cooked your breakfast, bro. You did, and it was wonderful. (laughs) You showed us uh, your family history video, and you were actually part of clearing that land back then. Yeah, um, I had the privilege of um, being here and helping my father clear the last um, 1,000 acres of um, property, well, the other block that we've got over there, and that was predominantly um, gravel country with some clay in there as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I know what it's like to clear land, clean up mallee roots and pick rocks and put fires through and, you know, do all those sorts of things. So the kids there were given an axe, no shoes on, just chipping away. Well, that, those... Yeah, that's how my father started out as a little boy when they first come out here. They had two little lack or two brothers. They had a little tomahawk each and they'd be um, cutting the saplings down, so... Back then, how would you grow a crop? So once the once the clearing had been done, tell us about the farming back then. In my time or my father's time? Your time. Uh, well, generally it always rained around Easter time, so you'd go in with your first initial ripping up and then you'd um, obviously wait for the weeds to germinate and you'd go and cultivate it again, work it back, so you might have to do that once or twice. And then sometimes, like, we went and picked a whole lot of mallee roots because we had some big mallee roots we didn't want to put through the combine. Then we seeded it. Sometimes we um, wouldn't finish seeding until the end of June, which obviously in today's climate is way too late. 
smaller tractors back then. Yeah, a lot smaller, yeah. Much fertiliser going out or none? Oh, we used to use just straight superphosphate. I can't remember what we used to put out, 80 Mm. 80 to 100, or would have been kilos, probably 80 kilos, I think, something like that. Um, Yeah, so it's pretty simple, really, just um, superphosphate. Used to always pick their wheats um, and barley. Uh, Didn't use hardly, well, we didn't use any nitrogen at all, so we just used to, it used to be just a... um, pasture rotation so you'd crop every um you know usually three years and two years of pasture so and the pastures had some legumes and clovers and things yeah some of them did yeah um like you know talking about the high sodium here on the home country we used to have a lot of barley grass um then you get the cape weed which is barley grass and cape weed is an indication of your calcium deficiency so yeah barley grass is terrible stuff to have with those who know what it's like get in the sheep's eyes and in the wool mm. and we used to have the tree fall burr down on the um, used to get in the wool and all the rest of that so terrible when did you realize that calcium was a real key weak link in your soils and in, in this farming systems here and that it was it was a key part of the solution if not the main foundation what what year was that and, and how did you come across that well initially there was uh, well i sort of started to get a bit of a uh, an inkling or a, um, a hearing of it, but um, a group of us from Australia and predominantly Western Australia went across to America and we um, uh, visited um, some prominent uh, biological consultants over there, um, Arden Anderson and then uh, Neil Kinsey. And then um, the next year we had a school here and uh, I've done a few schools with Neil Kinsey, so reading his book and just learning more about the importance of the um, the, the ratios in the cation balance. So um, that's where it all started. And that focused you, that gave you a bit of a framework to sort of work on and develop the different soils and get soil tests and start to get that balance and tweak things. Yeah, well, you know, it's pretty scary looking back on the soil test now, you know, a huge amount of hydrogen on the acid soils. And obviously a huge amount of magnesium and sodium on the alkaline soils and it's all deficient in calcium. So that was the first place I started uh, working on the soils by doing that and then obviously doing other things to tweak it after that. So rates of lime and gypsum on this on these soil types, what, what sort of rates are you putting out <coughs> to get that balance? Well, I was always taught to, to do small amounts more often. So initially I started out with a tonne to the hectare and then after that I'd I'd do a soil test and then I'd follow it up by doing no more than half a tonne to the hectare yeah. of of lime and that usually was a three-way mix with a bit of gypsum, carbonate and a hydroxide calcium mixed in there. Yeah, get different reactivities. And yeah, because yeah. Uh, in my case with the um, alkaline soils, I was chasing the um, soluble calcium because they had the high pH soils. So you weren't trying to change pH, you just wanted that ratio. <coughs> That's right, I just wanted to rearrange yeah. what the pH was made up of. Yeah, yep. get that cal- that magnesium down and the calcium yep. up. Yeah, and the sodium down. Yeah. So that was what in the early '90s when we called it biological farming. Back <coughs> then, is that when it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it's yeah. just yeah. They just the 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 coin was phased. Biological farming. You chuck a bit of molasses in and a few other things, and yep. yeah, that's what it White was called. White sugar and urea. That's yeah, done all that. Yeah. That. Yep. <laughs> yep. yeah, yeah, sugar in the air cedar and yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's uh, those early days of the yeah, biological yeah, yeah. farming yeah. times. Yeah, so sure was. 
So you saw improvements through that decade and then into the 2000s through that cation, you know, getting that calcium in and rearranging things. Yeah, um, obviously more more areas um, had a quicker improvement, but other areas I've since then I've, I've come back and started to address those um, soils which obviously had a higher magnesium, so they just needed more calcium there. And uh, so yeah, there's been a big improvement across the whole farm. Like you know, getting air in the soil in the in the roots, you know, that's the first thing that's most obvious. Just the, mm. the amount of root growth you get, and water infiltration, obviously. Yeah, water infiltration. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And then you get the earthworms, and the whole show goes in a positive way because you get more roots, so you get more growth, and that stimulates more. Yeah, just the the color of the soil, mm. the, the the depth of the a horizon getting deeper, and then you know you get a different um, soil. Um, organisms in there you know just keeps increasing so i'm interested rob what made you start looking for something else so you're using superphosphate um and then you've gone looking and found out that calcium was really key to your system what made you go looking were things working were things not working well even even as a um a young farmer i used to drive around and i used to look at the soil and you know, there's huge rise at tiny areas and areas which had, you know, lots of barley grass and then over there it was something else. And I just see this is not right, you know, it's all uneven and there's a huge production loss. And um, I just had this innate um, sense that something wasn't right even then. So I, I guess what started it all was that, um, you know, I've said this before, my wife doesn't mind me saying it, but I've got sick of having a sick wife and then I started looking for some nutritional remedies for her and that, that led me on to um, tying that in with a um, nutritional remedies for the soil so they go hand in glove human and you can't separate the two. Human health and soil health. That's yeah. right, yeah, yeah, you can't separate it. Yeah. yeah. So after sort of, you know, going, getting that sort of started to be sorted, I guess we could say, and, and getting some improvements there, did you look at, um, bringing look then start looking at other nutrients or trace elements and things did that sort of start to come into your thinking at some point uh yeah well obviously you know after addressing the calcium and then i um started to address the phosphate well i sort of did that to start with as well as calcium and then come back around and start addressing the trace minerals copper zinc manganese and then you got the you know the minor trace elements like molybdenum and a few other things like that and then um, after I've done that, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm still doing it. I've got a long way to go to get it to where it ideally should be. But um, just putting in some biological food sources to keep feeding the biology mm. to make everything keep working all the time. Rob, when did you start using nitrogen? Yeah, well, my father, you never, we never, never used to use nitrogen, but uh, I, I guess I just started sort of, getting into the compound fertilisers like the MAP and that was the first introduction and then uh, it wasn't until when I started going all cropping that I realised I'd needed more nitrogen so then I started in the, um, well I used to use a bit of UAN. Um, Granuloc, did you use any of those Granuloc type products? Um, well no, well actually yeah I did, I have used um, granular sulphate ammonia top dress that out um seems to be that i'd always as long as i can remember i've had a mixing tank 
even in the early years and dissolved up sulfate ammonia mixed together, sulfate ammonia and urea, um, and then urea. So, um, yeah, I've been doing that for quite a while now, just dissolving that up and then spraying that out because I, I learnt the hard way in the early years, you know, when you're ploughing in stubbles that carbon nitrogen ratio can bite you real big. Um, because nothing grows without nitrogen because to form a new cell at the nucleus every cell is nitrogen so it's pretty important to have it and you don't go anywhere without it no matter what form it comes in so that yeah that c to n and that lag of nitrogen supply that you get from that high carbon load and yeah i mean you know as, as much as i hate to say it we we still seem to have to sort of rely on some um industrial nitrogen to a certain extent you just get smart in how you use it and you mix a carbon source with it but um you once you start to see those yellow leaves the older leaves on the plant where you know you're in trouble and once that starts to happen that's when usually diseases come in and all sorts of other problems so there is um, nitrogen is necessary there for the health of the plant it's a, it's a balancing act Yep. So, so you went to 100% cropping and obviously you brought in nitrogen to help. Well, the 100% cropping come about because those um, those years when we had the stockpile, yeah, sheep yep. weren't worth anything. Yep. I mean, I used to love my sheep, but I grew to hate them. It was after having them for 10 years, 10 years too long, so I sold them, moved into continuous cropping. And I think even I remember the first year I did it, we probably made just as much cropping twice as many hectares as what we did half as many hectares the year before so um that's because i didn't understand what i was doing so you know you had to spend the money to get the results recently you've jumped into plant diversity so you you kind of tackled some of those key chemical and structural constraints of the soil or you're tackling them and you, you know you're working on them but recently you've been exploring today we're out in the paddock looking at some different combinations of things so What's been your thoughts around bringing plant diversity into the paddocks and into your farming system? What's well, I suppose my first introduction to multi-species was a, a five-way mix when we um, were doing uh, summer cropping. So um, I did five C4 plants in, which was would have been millet, sunflower, lab lab, cowpea, and safflower. And then uh, now I've gone into the winter species so um, we're doing seven seven multi-species now all together cereals and legumes and uh at on second year of doing that now and it uh, seems to be um becoming more common and i see it as a good thing because with the high nitrogen prices plus also the diversity you put in the soil mm. the plant health and uh, i guess it all started because we um we planted it last year and then all of a sudden we had someone asking if we were going to harvest it and we had a market for it. So, What did you jag ton? What was your ton price that you got for it in the end? Well, I, I don't know whether I should be disclosing oh. it, but it's probably don't not... Really really no, don't <laughs> no, it's not really a secret. Yeah. Um, it's $300 a ton, that's what we settled on at the time. Mm. And uh, so, you know, the, the, I mean, the whole paddock didn't, didn't um, go... Um, well, the parts of it were doing three and four tonne. But uh, ryegrass was still an issue in parts of it, but mm. we didn't know whether we were going to harvest it, and so uh, I guess it was a pretty good outcome for that anyway. So yeah, as well as getting that soil building um, process. Yeah, 
So I guess that's the challenge. One of the challenges for you is ryegrass because if you're doing a multi-species here with with problematic areas of rye, then you haven't got a tool in the toolbox in terms of a selective herbicide to help you manage that. Yeah, well, that that is the issue because obviously um, what is a, um, a herbicide for a cereal, um, legumes and grasses together as different herbicides. So you can't mix the two together and use like the same herbicide. So we use Treflan and Prosulfacarb. Uh, that's what we've settled on at the moment. But um, if you've got ryegrass there, you've got to really deal with the ryegrass before you get a crop because otherwise you won't get much of a crop. Mm. And, and we're in a, a dual crop there at the end of the day, which is um, faba beans and canola mm. down the front there where you've planted them in alternate rows. You get a dual crop going. Well, last year was the first year we um, started doing uh, dual crop, companion crops, mm. call it what you like. We yeah. did chickpeas, canola, that was even three years ago, a lupins canola last year, and this year we got favour beans and canola and lupins and canola as a dual crop. Obviously, the challenge there is same thing, chemicals, so you've got to be picking your soil types to do it because you don't want to be overtaken by a, a broadleaf or grass. Because you can't control. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. Where do you see the future going with these dual crops? Do you see them getting traction and, and being part of the commercial sort of harvesting sequence in the, in the farm? Um, yeah, no, I, I, I see that it's an ongoing thing because, as I was saying before, you know, you can grow canola without the nitrogen. Makes sense to me because uh, the the plant can express itself on whatever soil type it's on. So what fits one soil type for one plant might not fit another. So having the two different crops in there in some areas of the paddock, yeah, soil types, yeah, they'll dominate and the other one will dominate. And you know, I think it's a, a mindset more than anything because um, some people probably might not be bothered because of the um, the work involved in grading it out at harvest time. But, you know, you should just tell yourself that, you know, how am I going to get around this and to solve the problem? So you just sort of resolve yourself to the fact that you're going to do it. So um, it's not a real big deal to um, grade it out, but, uh, yeah, I think it's the way of the future anyway. Mm. And the health of the plants, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, well, um, I've, I haven't personally experienced it, but I've heard others say that if you put a brassica with a um, faba bean, that's just one example, you'll, you'll lessen the disease of chocolate spot because uh, obviously people who grow faba beans know that you continually always spray a fungicide on it, so... That's a win-win situation for me. And we didn't see any spot today in the paddock at all. Well-sized plants and yeah, no, the plants are looking really healthy and you and know it's a wetter wetter year too. So yeah, yeah. I, I would say if it's not there now, well, it's mm. not going to be an ongoing problem. So touch wood. Digging up between those rows, um, we were finding that those roots were spreading spreading across. So those two plants were connecting. What do you think is going on there? Well, plants obviously are exploring all the time, so they're connecting with each other, and um, the soils allowing the plants to act, the roots to actually go across there and to reach out to each plant. 
Do you think that there's going to be any benefit in that? Well, if you cover the whole whole soil area with plants, yeah, most definitely, yeah. It's called the Telstra effect, isn't it? When you connect things up, <laughs> connect things up properly and everything's working, then yeah. everything goes a bit better. Yeah. Sorry, Optus effect. We don't win a favour one tele- telephone company <laughs> overnight. Optus doesn't work. <laughs> so I guess, Rob, where, you see, where do you see the farms and the soil? Like how far along to the potential improvement do you see the whole these paddocks? Like you've been on the game a long time now. How much more work do you think Dan's going to have? To, to get to get it sorted. Well, as I've always said, that if you think you've arrived, well, you've got to be careful because you can never rest on your laurels because the soil can quickly go back, and uh, that's what a farmer is. We're we're a husbandman of the actual soil, and so we're always got to be addressing a continuing fertility um, plane to keep going forward to keep improving the system. And it's a complex system and it goes up and down, it fluctuates, so you've always got to be on the ball keeping an eye on it. Yeah, it's it's pretty complex. I mean, like, biology likes to um, to eat food. So, you know, however we do it, we need to keep feeding that biology and keep um, keeping them happy all the time. We talk about the chemical, the physical and the biological. Um, do you, we, and we talked about the steps that you took today. Um, to achieve those three, do you want to tell us um, what you think is the important steps for your farm? What what was first, second, third? Probably the um, the chemistry is the first bit I worked on, and with the chemistry, um, you're supplying the um, some of the essential um, cations here, the nutrients, and it allows the oxygen to get in because of the calcium magnesium ratio, and so. Um, if you let the oxygen in, well, then you improve the biology, which improves the physical, well, the physical's actual soil, isn't it? And that, that triggered that change and chain of events to, to go on a positive, positive pattern. Yeah, yeah. But as I said before, you can't rest on your laurels. You always got to be out there digging and observing and just going with the change that the soil is taking the direction in. Uh, you've got to be monitoring it all the time. When So your next step was the biologicals. Tell us what you've done in the biological space. Uh, well, in the early days we used to use molasses and sugar and um, fish. and But, yeah, basically I sort of keep it pretty simple now. I, I have used humates with fertilisers, but basically it's just um, fulvic acid with the, um, the liquid... Um, any time we run out the paddock, the burn spray, we're always putting fulvic acid out. I do. What uh, sort of rates you put it out? A hundred mils each time. Yeah. Yep. That's about eighty cents a hectare. Eighty, eighty-five cents. Fish. I've started out with fish. Oh, probably over ten years ago now. So I've always just kept with that because I believe that it's part of the reason why I've got earthworms across the whole farm. Is because um, spraying the fish um, because they like the proteins in there. And where are you getting that fish from? Uh, comes from um, Port Lincoln, South oh, Australia. Uh, yeah, powdered, dried fish. No, no, that's no. fish hydrolysate. So it's a liquid hydrolysate. Yeah. yeah. So um, my um, standard brew is that uh, usually always it's fish and fulvic in the boom spray, 
with whatever I'm putting out, even chemicals. And then when I'm putting the dissolved urea out, it's fish, fulvic, and urea. Now I've started using some kelp, and I've even started... Yeah, a liquid product, or you buy that as a powder? No, um, no, it's a powder, but it dissolves up very easy. Yep. And there are varying sorts of kelp, which mm. some dissolve easily and some don't. Australian kelp, or without giving a brand away, Australian uh, kelp? No, I believe it's not, I don't yeah. think, yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's just how it's formulated, how, yeah. it's, how it mixes easily. Yeah. And then, um, uh, what else? Yeah. Oh, that's what, amino acids, so I've just started trying that now. Mm. So again, yeah. that powdered aminos that you... Yeah, Dissolvable yeah. solid sort of stuff, <clears throat> yeah. They, they are a bit um, finicky to yeah. mix up, so... yeah. Then I, I use liquids, you know, like I um, I get a liquid from a um, common WA company that um, makes up, uh, they use the trace element sulfates and they put your carbons and your kelp and your fish and mm. you know, all those other things in there. So I get that made up as a liquid yep. and that goes down the tube with UAN at seeding time and then we add a little bit of extra kelp to that. Coating your seed at all or using... Oh, yeah, um, seed dressing. Well, yeah, I tried various seed dressings. Um, yeah, I've sort of I've sort of settled on Nutrisol and fish. I don't know why, but, um, yeah, that's just what we we, we um, settled on. Um, we've got it all set up, so it's we just carry our own um, old boom spray tank around, our computer spray tank. We have the water in that, and we just have a granny pot. And we have the shuttles close by, so it's made to be a portable unit. And so we just put that up the auger, five litres each to the tonne. So, Rob, like, you know, there's a bit too doing a custom biological agronomy program like what you're doing is, you know, there's a little bit to it. You know, you've got to think it through and design the program for yourself and get the different ingredients. And as you highlighted today, when you want to do multi-species and customize your blend you've got to get the seed and organize it and mix it at the rates you need to etc so there's a bit of work in going down this regenerative approach if i can use that word in yeah no, that, yeah yeah that's right david yeah, it's definitely an effort there i mean you you know you've got to have that mind shift you you want to actually do that and it probably could add an extra week to seeding but um you know i believe that if you're going to go down this road and you want an outcome well you've got to be prepared mm. to put the extra effort and time into it and you just tell yourself that that's what you're going to do so you obviously try to streamline it to make it more um efficient uh, as you can. yeah workable so yeah. you can actually do it yeah. yeah 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 but um yeah i mean you know it's it's obviously not for the faint-hearted but then Sometimes it gets to a stage that you know human humans um, seem to um, for things to get worse, no, for things to get better they have to get worse. So they're actually forced into doing something. A bit of pain for a long term gain. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, you depends on how observant you are and in looking around to see what's happened. You, you realise you have to change your direction and what you're doing. So if we think about other broadacre guys in the you know dry fed rain fed um cropping in australia 100 percent croppers because you're 100 percent cropping um what might be your first you know first steps top two things you'd suggest to someone wherever they are different soil types etc what might be that are thinking to make some changes what might be top of your list of 
Well, I guess it, I guess it depends on, I mean, each, each operation is, is different in what they do, but, um, the, the first thing to do would be to, um, well, this is probably, you could probably do these in tandem, but obviously you do a soil test, a proper soil test, and you address your limiting factors there, and that's not just for pH. So tackle your key soil constraints. That's right. But at the same time you do that, because once you're doing that, it's easier to, um, wean yourself off insecticide and fungicides because they're, they're two sides that kill, that obviously damage the, um, the whole system in supporting it because obviously you're taking out your insects and you're taking out your biology. So that's step two? Well, they'd work in tandem with the first step. Yeah, yeah pretty yeah. close together. So yeah, lower right. the biocides and, and yeah. address the key soil constraints. Yeah. Yeah. That's oh. often a worry that people will ask, you know, how do I know my soil's, soil's ready to take off those insecticides? Well, that's why you've got to start working on your chemistry first. And then, um, you know, I guess if you've been used to using it all the time, it's a bit like insurance. You're scared to not keep using it, so you've got to, you know, try a paddock without it. Monitor your plants, you know, increase your sugar levels in your plant by observing that with a refractometer. So um, I think by cutting out your sides first and you haven't addressed the chemistry, is probably the wrong approach. What about the decision if you uh, are thinking of using a fungicide, so you've said some fungal attack on your leaf? Well, if, if it's that bad, yeah, you, you, you obviously um, you know, need to do it if you're going to lose your crop, but sometimes it can be um, looks worse than what the actual outcome is. It totally depends on the area that you're in, whether you're in a, a more marginal area or whether you're in a wet area for the funguses to keep increasing. Sometimes you just have to allow time for nature to actually override the, the occasion for the plant to come good to um, to give itself the resistance to the disease that you've got. Do you think using uh, nutrition and biology and your diversity of plants that your need for considering using a fungicide is reducing? Well, we've never really been a big um, user of fungicide anyway, but definitely the more plants you've got together with them all working together in tandem and a um, synergy, you're going to have a lot less reliance on fungicides. I guess it's no different to us as humans because, I mean, like if you have an um, antibiotic, you've got to have a probiotic to start increasing your biology in your gut. So it's the same in the soil. If you keep taking out the, um, the biology all the time, you've got to put something back in to support it. You talked about the start at the very beginning where you were having lots of barley grass and capeweed and you were having to use a lot of chemicals. So that's when you went looking for the answer and you thought you found calcium really helped with that. Have you found that you've been able to reduce your chemical usage by addressing your nutrition and biology? Uh, that's a difficult one. Um, you still you still use the same amount of um, knockdowns to obviously kill the weeds. So I wouldn't say that we have reduced that there, but we don't use insecticides and fungicides. Um, so because I believe they're the first two that are easy to uh, manage, fungicides, insecticides, but herbicides, that's the last that's always hardest to um, 
to get rid of if we ever can get rid of them, which I, you probably can, but obviously well, whether we can do that in our souls that we've got or, you know, in our system that we don't, I don't know, but I mean... What do you think about a crop roller, crimper? Have you thought about keeping yourself... Yeah, I've thought crop crop about it, but, yeah. you know, obviously you've got to grow tall plants and you've got to have the thick stems and mm-hmm. whether that will work with ryegrass and all of those things, so... Challenge yet to be tackled. Or... Yeah, I mean, there's always there's new things on the horizon, there's new ways of looking at things, but... At the, for the meantime, you know, we still rely on some herbicides. And you're putting out the fish and the fulvic acid with that each time? Most times, yeah. Well, I usually put out like two litres with a knockdown or one litre. I use it actually as a crop oil, in, in, well, in lieu of a crop oil. So it's a surfactant type thing? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I put that with the, um, with the um, knockdown herbicides and I put a little bit with the um, preceding herbicide. Then I'll put some extra or come back and finish off um, when I do the foliars with the urea and the um, biologicals. Put some fish with that and that's the last lot I put out. And there's plenty of competition in those covers and the dual crops. When you sow it, when you get it right, there's not a lot of room for the weeds. I mean, I know ryegrass is a bit of an issue in patches, but you get that competition effect from your, from your multi-species or your cover crop plants. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because we're still we're still trying to um, work out the best approach. Whether we um, put it in first uh, dry, and then when the rains come, the um, the multi species gets ahead before the temperature gets too low for the ryegrass to germinate. Now, I still believe it's important to put a bit of fertilizer out to give it the energy. So uh, yeah, it's it's just um, how long the system will keep going before we actually. Um, can work out how to um, uh, improve it, whereby the ryegrass is the weaker plant. I guess that's the challenge. Mm. Get to the point where it's a, it's a minor part of the system. Yeah, because because if ryegrass is pretty competitive, we we obviously we can see that, that we're not doing something right because the ryegrass, like with all wheats, they're trying to um, improve the system. They're trying to change. The condition of the soil, they're, they're bringing a nutrient up to to increase in the soil, so we've got to work out what that is. At the start, you talked about one of your reasons was uh, because you were sick of having a sick wife. How's Judy going now? What yeah, no, yeah, well, yeah, she used to get all the itises, and um, yeah, obviously, um, what we were doing at that time did help, and uh, we actually um, gave our children the, the same. Well, it's actually barley green it was then, so that's from the green leaves of barley, which I believe has got the broadest spectrum of nutrients in out of 400 plants, discovered by Japanese. There was that company in Queensland, what are they called? Safe. They used to sell the barley. Oh, uh, well, yeah, well, they... You remember them? Yeah, remember they, them, they, they, they... We're they, showing our age here, and yeah. I know you're older than me. No idea, I've got no idea. <laughs> they, they weren't the originals, but yeah, no, they... They, they were pretty them. active, weren't they? Yoshihida Hagawari, his name was, okay. but he was the first one that um, came up with it. But, um, yeah, so um, once we started feeding that to our children, uh, we had, you know, a lot less health issues, and our last one that was born, well... She was the healthiest out of all of them because she had it. I'll tell you how powerful it was. I must say this because, um, you know, when you're the first, um, when you're breastfeeding, you've got the, the colostrum, you know, how, and then obviously that comes out in the baby's nappy. You can see the colour it comes out. 
So anyway, my wife, um, when she came back from hospital, because um, she didn't want to have it when she's pregnant, but we know different now that it's a food source, so <laughs> that would have been all right. But she had half a teaspoon, and obviously went through her, through the breast milk, and come out and the baby's nappy and it was green. Wow. A good way to end the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking a lot about um, mineralising today, but that's a of it, isn't it? Yeah. No, I think I've thoroughly enjoyed staying here, Rob. You're very health conscious, serving me up bone broth and all sorts of healthy things. I can see that your whole family is health conscious. You sit together, you you eat together, you pray together. It's really lovely. Thank you. And it's, yeah, I have to say, Rob, I really appreciate you sharing your yeah, yeah, deep experience in you know on this journey of tackling soil health and soil biology and stuff because that that your stories, you know, a lot of the younger fellows that don't know that biological era that you know yeah. i only got the, the tail end of it but you, you you lived right through i mean it's, it's there's some important experience in there that i think the young guys will really appreciate when they listen yeah to well guys. you know I, I must i must say that um i've had uh, my workers stick with me through this because we were one of the first ones in the district to go to liquid behind the air center and you know the early stages end up setting that up and having a little disc for the um the stream to go through and uh, actually I must say that um, even then we had the dam water and were calcium nitrate and molasses for the first few days that worked the treat then we'd start getting these blocks and it'd be underneath the bar for half an hour or hour or so cleaning all these blocks out. It took us about two to three years to, to work it out and how that actually come about was that um, after we'd seeded a, a summer crop we had a little bit left over in the in the tank and we just left it down there at the bottom of the house site. And then I was walking past it one day and I saw this end of the actual filter. Now this filter must have been at least a quarter inch thick on the end cap. And it just blew the end off. I thought, wow. I said, that's the pressure of biology. And it was then that we worked out what was happening is because the clay in the dam water Combined with the calcium and the molasses mm. as a carbohydrate, it was growing and it's just like forming snot. Mm. It just kept blocking up these nozzles. Yep. <laughs> so they were the hard years that we went through. <laughs> yep, there's plenty of those experiences that, yeah, and the white sugar I've heard from another old farmer I was lucky enough to work Yeah, with well, I've got a story, story to tell about that as well. <laughs> we used to use brown sugar and put that in the, we coated the um, faba beans with that. And, uh, yeah, pretty well blocked up the air center. We spent the next day cleaning all the hoses out and stuff yeah, like that. And yeah. No, <laughs> the, the next gen are getting getting a little bit easier. They Still sure not, are. Yeah, solved, we've, we've yeah. sorted it all out. Well, yeah. we haven't really sorted it out, but we... <laughs> we've got those important lessons. So, no, thanks for taking yeah. the time to share that because I know everyone will enjoy it. So. I appreciate it. And um, thank you for um, coming here. And, uh, yeah, I, I enjoy... Um, telling anyone who wants to listen please follow the biological farming roundtable podcast share it with your friends and networks i'm nicola maddick and i work at nutrisoil a liquid biological fertilizer made from a big worm farm whose purpose is to empower farmers to produce life enriching food